This podcast does not constitute medical advice. All changes surrounding medications, diet and exercise should be made in consultation with a professional who can assess your unique health circumstances. Welcome to the Patterson Program, where you'll learn how to improve your health from the inside out. And now, your host, Clint Patterson. Really excited to be chatting with Jackie today. She's in St. Louis, Missouri. How are you, Jackie? I'm great, Clint. How are you? Really, really good. And the, just the couple of minutes that we've gotten to know each other before we've started recording made me very excited to have you explain the journey that you've been through because you've got some things we'd, we'd like to talk about that uh, some people come across in their own journeys, like traveling and how to eat out when you're traveling because you've uh, you're going to ex- tell us about how you're you're busy with your work and traveling around. We're going to touch upon in this episode uh, methotrexate, prednisone, Enbrel, Arencia Humira, Rituxan, and the good old U.S. medical insurance uh, and how you've been through the the uh, washing machine with with that. Jackie's going to explain to us um, how she learned so much uh, through her experiences by researching and interviewing other people with this condition, which really gave her insights into, I guess, a lot of the deep struggles that people face and how she went to the Mayo Clinic facilities in the US, a very, very famous establishment, as well as the Cleveland Clinic of Functional Medicine. So you've, you've done a lot of your own research and you've had tremendous results with the Patterson program. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to having this conversation with you. Me too. So I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to share, you know, I as far as the research is concerned, that's just how I'm built. You know, when I was diagnosed with this, I didn't want to um, accept it. You know, I think most people feel the same way. So I was looking for answers to find a way around it. You know, um, unfortunately, the disease is going to be with me the rest of my life, but I've found um, a way to live live with it. And thanks to you. Oh, fantastic. Well, I've given a kind of an overview of, of where we're going to go with this. You've been able to share with me some of your results. Just just hit the audience with just 15 seconds like a TV commercial. This is where I was and this is where I am now before we get any further. Okay. Uh, first diagnosed in March of 2016 and I couldn't, I woke up one morning, couldn't even open a tea bag. I couldn't tie my shoes. My hands were clenched. Uh, the pain, you know, when, when you, we first set up this interview to do, I look back at my journals and I can't even believe how bad I was when I read that because I've come so far and uh, went through the process of going through a year of being on different medicines, switching around, feeling miserable, and then a year of, of changing diet after diet after diet to now almost being three years since my diagnosis and feeling almost no symptoms of my rheumatoid arthritis. Oh, it's uh it's fantastic. And uh, you mentioned you're down to just five milligram of methotrexate, but you've been on all those drugs I mentioned before, except the prednisone, and you didn't quite get on Arencia and Humira. We'll talk about how you sidestepped those, but uh, you've been on the biologics, you've been on Rituxan, and now you're just on five milligram methotrexate. So it's a fantastic result. Great. Thank you. So t- tell us, uh, you mentioned three years ago is when you got the condition. Let's just bullet point through your story. Not that I don't want it in a lot of detail, but you've got so much else to share that I want to touch upon in this episode. So let's work through your story um, in a sort of a bullet point fashion. Give us the highlights 
and uh, and and I'll jump in if I can relate to some of it and share some further insights. Okay, great. So when I first came down with the symptom, I was misdiagnosed by my primary doctor after getting blood tests. I requested, you know, after what I've read, I felt that I had rheumatoid arthritis, requested a blood test. Uh, she came back and said, oh, it looked negative. But when I printed out the results myself, it looked pretty positive. So the difficult part that I had was trying to get an appointment with a rheumatologist. It, I needed a referral, which I didn't trust my primary doctor at that point. And when this happened, this was probably in the first week of April, I couldn't get my first appointment until September. So we're talking oh, five, six months. Gosh. So that was, and if you can imagine, you know, feeling that much pain and being to where I couldn't hardly bear to, you know, to do anything, I was really discouraged by that. So I kept trying. I, I ended up getting to a rheumatologist uh, probably about a month later due, due to a friend who knew someone. And then I set up uh, three more right after that. So I set up with three different rheumatologists because I thought, I'm going to go teach one, see which one I like better, especially if it's going to take me six months to get into them. So I finally got the diagnosis probably three or four months after my symptoms. And that was probably the timeline that was the most difficult because everybody wanted me to start with methotrexate, start mm. with prednisone, and everything I read about it, I didn't want to start either of them. So I eventually, after the third di doctor had told me, yes, you have it, let's go ahead and start on it. I started with methotrexate. And... Um, you know, about month, a month later, started with Embril and did not feel well from either of them. So it was almost about eight months when I was on both of these drugs and mm. nothing seemed to be working. But mm. my doctor told me we have to keep you on this for four to six months because that's what the insurance requires. So uh, from that point. Sorry, I'm just I'm fascinated. Yeah. And I, I haven't yet understood the worldwide uh, country to country protocol for how the biologic drugs are qualified for. It, it does seem that in the US, it comes down to your insurance. It seems like if you've got insurance A, then you can go straight from methotrexate to a biologic drug, but insurance B, you may not be able to. Uh, do you understand all this or is it? it <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it, it's something that I've always kind of been aware of in the back of my mind to experience it yourself. You're just like, this is crazy. And you're absolutely right because, you know, no offense against my doctors, but they were tripping over themselves to try to give you the next drug. Oh, and if that don't work, we'll give you this other one. Oh, you got this insurance. They'll approve that. We have to play this game with it. And it's ridiculous. And then yeah. when you actually get the cost of all this, I mean, you know, I'm fortunate. I have a very good insurance plan through my, my work. But I know there's a lot of people who don't, and That's you know that they probably forego those drugs because they can't afford it. And it's just, it's just here in America, it's it's something we talk about. It's it's ridiculous, and mm. I don't understand it. You know. Yeah. Okay. No, we're we're all still learning it. It it seems very complicated. I know that in Australia, you've got to be uh, failing certain number of the conventional disease modifying drugs. So you might go methotrexate then you might add a sulfasalazine or a Plaquenil. Uh, and then if these things all together fail, then the government will subsidize and you can go on a biologic drug. So that's the system here. You've got to fail, fail, fail. And so therefore you're eligible because your symptoms are so bad. In the States, sure. you know, I, I witnessed this like your story with other people. They just go straight onto a biologic drug and I'm like, whoa, okay, it must be, it must come down to the insurance level. So 
Yeah. Yeah. But thank you for, for that. Now, okay, so you've gone on these two significant drugs and eight months in, you're feeling rotten. What yeah. next? So again, back to the insurance, you know, my doctor seemed to think that Rituxan would be the drug for me, but she said I ne- needed to go on another biologic for the insurance, satisf- satisfying the insurance company, because mm-hmm. you need to fail two of those before you can go to the Rituxan. So she was going to try to introduce, she tried to get the Rituxan and was going to try to go to Humira or Arinzia. And somehow, lo and behold, I got a call from the hospital that said, hey, we're going to set up your appointment for the infusion for Rituxan. It's, it's done by an infusion. You get it and then you, two weeks later, get another infusion and then you're good for six months, yep. supposedly. So, yeah. so that was the next step. And mm-hmm. I jumped right from the embryo to the Rituxan. And you stopped the Anbrils completely, but you yes. kept the methotrexate weekly tablets while you Correct. while you were going through this six-month period. You were just basically on both. Yeah, the methotrexate, so they started me with four to see if my body could handle it. Then I went to six tablets, um, 20 milligrams, and then uh, to 25 they wanted me to be on. And the first week I took those that dosage, you know, I knew I was a little foggy with even starting the methotrexate, but this one really put me over. I was in the middle of a conference call and couldn't even finish the conference call. And I was just really confused. And after a week of it, I said, no, I can't do this. And my doctor continued to try to push me because she really wanted me to be on, on 10 tablets. And, um, I just, you know, said, no, I can't, you know, I can't function under that. So, uh, we kept it at six, six tablets a week at 2.5 milligram each. Yes. Okay. So, Fast forward through the Rituxan six months. Did you ever get to the second round of injections? Oh, sorry, of infusions. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I, it's hard to, to decide um, to, to actually explain if it's the first or second because one one round is as a dose. You get an infusion and you go two weeks later. So I did that in the um, January of 2017, and I was due to have the next infusion in June of 2017. So at this time, you know, I'm feeling pretty good. I went to the Mayo Clinic in between that, um, just want to see what they know. And uh, after spending time with them, they said I'm on the right path. I, I figured they wouldn't probably disrupt what my doctor's doing. They said she's doing a great job, so continued on it. And this was in March of 2017. The Rituxan, my understanding is it takes six to eight weeks to start to feel, you know, to, to make any difference in your body to reduce the inflammation. So I started to feel relatively good at this point. And right about that time, in the first week of uh, March of 2016, uh, 17 is when I found your program. So I also started with the diet right then. So needless to say, I was feeling really good March, <laughs> April, May, June. And I went four months with the Patterson program, just cold turkey. When I started, when I found you and I was at my cottage in Michigan, I just watched every podcast I could. I was reading everything I could. I signed up for the program and I went all in, cold turkey, boom, almost to our, you know, fasted for four days and, and did everything. Yeah, so July comes around. I'm, I'm supposed to be getting my um, infusion, the next round of Rituxan in June, July. And I asked my doctor if I could put it off because I'm feeling great for at least a month. Um, I had a couple of big trips planned. I was going to the Virgin Islands. I was going to Napa Valley. So I'm feeling good. So in feeling good, you think you can start introducing some more foods, have a little bit of wine, have a little bit of this and that. 
And come back from my vacation and I start to feel a little, you know, not so well. Inflammation's feeling a little bit more. So I called, my doctor called and she said, oh, you've gotten refused by your insurance company for the next round. They denied you. They said, you don't have cancer and it's a, it's a leukemia drug. They said, so they're, they're further denying you. So she said, we'll appeal it. So I'm a little angry at this time because I'm not feeling so good. And I'm thinking this is a drug that's working, but I also didn't know, well, maybe it's also the Patterson program, the diet, you know? So after I uh, went, vented through my frustration for about a month, I finally realized this is a blessing in disguise because now what I can do is I can, the, the rituxans out of my systems, my understanding is it lasts about six months. And so therefore now I can go all in with the diet. And so I was a little excited to do that. So right around August, September, I went back to being really strict with the Patterson program, you know, sticking with it, exercising, doing everything I need to do. So again, two more denials from an insurance company on, on the Rituxan. Went back and saw my doctor in October, September, October. And she said, you know, you're looking really great, you know, considering that we're not getting this, we'll try to get the medication approved again. Late October, maybe November, I got a, a notice from my insurance company that they approved me, but I didn't say anything because I'm looking at my blood work, you know, which I'm getting every two, two weeks at this time. The SCD rates looks great. The CRP looks great. So I'm thinking, you know, I don't feel any inflammation. So why change anything? I thought the doctor would call me. Well, she never called. So January of uh, 2018 was my next visit with her. And she said, oh, I see you got approved for the Rituxan. Let's set up a, another infusion. And I said, no, 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 no. You know, let's take a look at it. Look at me. And she goes, yeah, you do look pretty good. And at this time, I'd also been... Since September, I started to lower my methotrexate. I had talked to her about it before. She didn't recommend it. But when I went in for this visit, I said, oh, by the way, I lowered my dose to five pills. And she's like, oh, okay, you know, <laughs> and I was feeling good. And I did this slowly, you know, because I don't want to jump at it. So then um, she said she agreed with me. Let's check back with you in April 2018 now. And she said, we'll see how you're doing. Went back in April. Everything again looked really good. Oh, by the way, I lowered myself to four pills of methotrexate. So um, we were doing pretty good. I had a little bit of a bout there. We had some, um, a little bit of stress going on in my life. I took on a new puppy, which wasn't the best idea, but my head and my heart don't always balance. So uh, then on top of that, we were doing a reduction in workforce. So a little stress with the job. We had to eliminate jobs. So I started to feel a little inflammation. And, you know, with the, with the puppy, I wasn't taking care of myself. So mm. she was a little concerned about that. And even though my blood work came back, she started to introduce, uh, possibly put me on Plaquenil, which mm. is a malaria drug, my mm -hmm. understanding. So I said, well, wait a minute. She said, well, it just will help you, blah, blah, blah. So she wanted to do some tests on that. At that time, now I'm at my two-year mark, and I was getting ready to go back and get my x-rays on my hands and my feet and my MRI to check it against the baseline. So, you know, I'm very inquisitive, my doctors, I ask them a gazillion questions. I'm probably one of their toughest patients, but I said to her, so if my MRI comes back, my x-rays come back and my blood work looks fine, is there any reason to, to, to go ahead and start with a plaque and all? And she said, no, I don't see a reason for it. So oh, yeah, sure enough, came back, everything I got back on a diet, I ended up I ended up giving the dog away. I realized oh. it wasn't the best for me mm -hmm. and uh, went forward with getting back to business and staying on diet. And when I went back and saw her again in July, 
everything looked great again. And by the way, I told her, <laughs> I'm lowering my methotrexate for three pills. <laughs> so, you know, I pretty much carried that all the way through, been feeling great in November. I went down to two pills, um, but I also realized what the one part I was missing was the exercise. So yes. the three components that have been really life-changing for me is the diet, reducing stress, you know, taking care of what only I can take care of and making sure I do a lot of mindfulness meditation and the exercise. The exercise, when I came into this diagnosis, I was as fit as I think, you know, anybody could be at my age. And I think that was the, the most difficult part was then all of a sudden I couldn't do anything. So it took a year of really struggling with different medications and not feeling, you know, like doing the fatigue. And then when I started feeling better, it was one part I didn't put right back into it because it was kind of hard to get back into it. So I told, I kind of made a pact with myself in November that I'm not going to allow myself to reduce my methotrexate anymore until I start doing the yoga, Bikram yoga, five days a week, get back on it. So that's the journey I'm on right now. And wow. until I finish that 90, that 100 day plan, actually, I won't allow myself to reduce the methotrexate anymore. So. Wow. Fantastic. Wow. Really enjoyed hearing that. Um, the Bikram yoga that you introduced, did you notice a stepwise reduction again in inflammation or any other improvements, uh, physical improvements after, after getting into that? Yeah. So I would like to say that I'm a little bit more consistent than, you know, what I really am, but I'm not, uh, I think the most difficult part for me is finding consistency in this program is because of my travel schedule. So I, I felt like I was doing it just here and there in order to kind of make up for that. Like when I'm on the road, I try to find a gym or a location where I can go to a steam room or sauna because yeah. I feel like I still get the same effect of getting the, the sweat and the toxins out and, and helping my joints. But I haven't been consistent with the Bikram yoga. So I'm really looking forward to, to get to that point. I'm kind of researching areas that I go to on a regular basis. Chicago, I'm always there looking at studios that I can actually become a member so I can drop in and do classes on a regular basis. So that's the only thing. I do know that it has helped me when, I, when I'm when i actually doing it, but I really need to find consistency. So that's what I'm working on right now. Uh, is there anything else you do besides yoga that's helpful for your joints physically? Um, I do. I do all kinds of workout program. I I think that I know some some people have difficulty with doing weights and things, but that has helped me tremendously just build that muscle mass. So I, I fluctuate between a, a, a weight program where, you know, I can building muscle and cardio every other day and just keep moving. You know, uh, the, the big difference here is that I find if I sit that I, I don't feel like doing anything. So it's always my mind. If you check around my house, I have post-it notes all over, you know, give yourself 45 minutes a day, keep moving, keep moving, you know, and that's just a motivator for me. So just to do any kind of activity, there's a lot of pride you have to swallow because I'm a very competitive athlete for many years that you have to realize you can't do certain things you used to be able to do. So mm -hmm. that's a difficult thing. I used to run, can't really do that too much anymore. The mm -hmm. knee kind of flames, you know, mm -hmm. so I have to kind of lower that a little bit, but I learned that that's okay. You know, it kind of goes along with my age. So <laughs> I, I can totally relate to that. Uh, I used to be a long distance runner, cross country runner and really enjoyed it. Just absolutely love the feeling of the breeze in my face and the, 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 just the exhilaration, even not at a fast pace, but just at a, at a long distance run that you get when you're running. Um, and my knees just too damaged to allow me to do that. 
uh, on the left side and I re-damaged it this year. Only about six, seven months ago, I was getting up off the floor in my in my daughter's room and I re-injured the knee. And so I've been working at the gym very, very regularly and Bikram yoga back into it like the old days just yeah. to get the strength back around the glute muscles and the lower part of my quadricep because I lost a little weight with the newborn baby, you know, just not able to, you know, and I've always been slim. And so for me, I've always had to be active at keeping my my muscle mass. Sure. And so anyway, losing a little weight around, particularly the hips and the and the thighs, and then the knee becomes susceptible to injury because it has to take bear more weight because the muscle mass isn't there to protect it. Yes. And I re-tweaked it. And yeah. and actually this afternoon I'm going to uh, have uh, my MRI uh, which I had done recently, uh, evaluated and just see what the need is is like because it's been about eight years since my last MRI on that knee. Yeah. So I can totally relate to it. And I watch people running from our balcony because there's a there's a bike path uh, outside uh, our balcony here at the house. And uh, and I say to Melissa, oh, I just want to be able to run like that guy. He runs really, you know. So we we all have those uh, sort of feelings of disappointment, but uh, there are other things that we can do to, to substitute those. And I'm so glad you talked about creating um, muscle mass. And I just think it's so important to build muscle. When we feel strong, it's an antidote for the emotions that come with the with the joints, uh, pain, and so forth. Yeah, it's you know it's an important thing with that too, Clint is. I didn't realize how much I'd lost too. You know, I kind of, when you lose the weight, you you don't feel like eating anything because you feel terrible, you know? So you start to lose weight and, you know, you look thin and frail. But then even when I started to gain the weight back, I realized the muscle I lost. And now that I'm back on this workout program and started, you know, you can see a difference just in in staying with something for two or three weeks. I can't believe how much, you know, you you forget when you're in shape, you forget how much, you know, shape you're in until you're out of shape. But you feel so much better. So if you can just do a little bit, I mean, I always have, you know, 10, 10 pound weights, five pound weights sitting right there. If I'm going to watch something on Netflix, I'm going to be doing this while I'm watching TV or a sporting event, you know, watch a, a games on TV. I got them right there and just knock out the reps. So Absolutely. I always try to keep it front and center, you know, completely agree. Last night we're watching the end of a Netflix documentary and I'm doing the pranayama breathing exercise right in front of the TV, you know, yeah. the very first thing in, in Bikram. Yeah. Um, right. So I, or if I'm not doing that, I'm on the floor and I'm stretching, you know, I'm doing some some hip hip opening exercises or some some silly wide uh, stretch right. for my inner thighs. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm the same. So I think... I can relate to that. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, if I can give a tip, I do this. My, my sisters are probably going to laugh at this, but if I can give a tip to viewers... You know, we, we all brush our teeth every morning and every night. And I have an electric toothbrush, and it's set for two minutes. In two minutes, I can knock out 120 squats. You can do so many things if you just think about it. And if you're doing this for two minutes in the morning and two minutes in the evening, yeah. think of a difference you can make just in, in two weeks. So, that's 120 <laughs> squats is incredible. You can do it. I mean, it's, it's every, you know, for two yeah. minutes, you're just yeah. sitting there and you're just doing different different things. So I always try to mix it up. So, Do you go down to chair level or is it sort of a, a, a semi-squat? I, I find this really interesting. <laughs> I do chair level and I do shoulder length and a little bit wider and a little bit wider. So oh, you're working different- so that your knees get and knees and feet get further apart yeah. each time. Yeah. yeah. Hey, have you ever found with your knee any kind of position with the squat 
that irritates the knee? Like how do you squat to ensure your knee feels good? Yeah, sometimes it's, you know, gets tweaked a little bit. And I, I'm an old soccer player, so I tore the ACL, MCL. Me too, tore my ACL, yep. yep. Seemed like that's the first area that gets attacked mm-hmm. when the, you have a flare-up. You 100%, know? that's what happened yes. to me too, yep. So I find that in the twisting, I just have to be very careful in the twisting motion. Yep. And especially if I do those squats that are where your, your knee's kind of at an angle, it's a little more difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, lunges too are something that, I used to be able to do fairly easily, but, you know, as you start to lose the muscle around that knee, you start to have a little, you know, you don't want to put too much strain on it. So sometimes when you do lunges, that's a little hard. And what I do sometimes is just, you know, use your, your hands on your thigh or something just so there's not so much pressure on that knee yeah. to bring you back up. Yeah. But yeah, building it around it and it's even just building the hamstrings and the quads. You can sit on the floor and you can, you know, from old knee injuries, you can do quad sets. And again, two to three weeks of doing those, holding those for five or 10 seconds. It's amazing the muscle you can build up in your quad just by sitting down. You know, I do it in a car. I drive a lot. Sometimes yeah. I drive, you know, four or five hours in a car. And if I'm sitting at a stoplight or something, I'll, I'll flex my, my muscles and my quad and stuff and try to strengthen that. I know? see. So you're not actually, uh, you might only raise off the seat, maybe only a quarter of an inch, but it's just the engagement and pushing down through the heels that gives it the squeeze. Yes. Oh, yeah. I love it. Okay. Yeah, fun, fun. I'm going to knock out 100 while we chat here. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> well, my, my bouncy ball right now, it's for your good for your core. So. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. This is, these are really good tips. Um, tell us if you are now speaking to someone who knows nothing about the Patterson program, but they have the materials and they've read it, mm-hmm. what would be the things you would say make sure you emphasize or look out for? Well, you know, I, I found it pretty easy for me to go into the fasting, you know, and that's kind of um, maybe a little unusual, but a lot of people are so afraid of that. And I would say then, then go into it with doing some broth or do a liquid, you know, where you get a little bit of something, if you're, if you're concerned about that, or just do it for the amount of time you can do it. You don't have to do it for two or three days. You know, I feel the best way to do it is to jump right into it, you know, but that's just me. You know, yeah. I think a lot of times we think too much about things and, you know, I'm going to start my diet on Monday. You know, I always say my, my comeback is why not start today? Why not today? You know? So if you can just jump right into it, that's the only way you're really going to know. I don't think there's anything to be afraid of. Everyone's different, you know? So what I experienced with it and I followed your program, I found success with it. But then after I went back a little bit, I found that maybe the quinoa wasn't so great for me. Um, I was just so excited to have some food after doing the juicing and the fasting that I was like, oh, this is great. But you have to really tweak it and it takes a lot of coming back to it. So the only way you can really find success in it is by starting it and starting to get underway and let it get going. And the elimination diet is difficult, but I find that I do resets every so often because one time, once you start feeling good, it's easy to say, oh, I can have that or I can do this. And we all, you know, we don't want to give up the things we love. So we do, you know, I love wine and I like to go back to it, but I also know the consequence of what's that going to be. I find that I can tolerate those things now because I don't do too much of it and I don't string it together. And so it's, um, it's really rewarding what you find that you can control your symptoms with your food and finding your program gave me hope when I was at a point where I thought, wow, this is the way it's going to be. I really went to a dark place, you know, um, one of the first things I did and, you know, sorry to kind of get sidetracked here, but when I first got diagnosed, 
I'm always the one that's always trying to figure out the answer that, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to find a solution for this. So I started to contact people that had it. The first thing, the first person that came to my mind was a college friend who we had just reconnected. And, you know, now you look back, there's a reason why we can reconnect it, but I had just moved back to St. Louis from Chicago. And I remember in the back of my mind her saying that one time we were at breakfast, but I never really, you know, shame on me, didn't pay attention to really what it was. So I called her first and she said to me, I'll never forget this. She said, I pray my friend that you do not have this because it's a devastating disease. I've struggled with it for over 15 years and I hope you don't have it. So from that moment on, I started contacting other people who had it. You know, my questions were, you know, how long did you have it? You know, what were your symptoms? What are the medications you're on? Who's your doctor? What's the side effects and the damages if you had any? And I think the most discouraging thing for me, which I'm sure a lot of of your viewers are, are finding, is that no one seemed to get better. And that was so discouraging because everybody was changing medications. Sure, the drug made them feel good for a while. They were calling it miracle drugs in some some circumstances. People would say, oh, this one was great. And then after five or four or five years, I couldn't handle it. And that wasn't good enough for me, you know? And I went to a dark place where I was so depressed because I thought, wow, everybody's on these medications. You keep changing. And this is the way it's going to have to be until I found your program and started reading more about diet. And when I looked at stories on your podcast and saw that, wow, you know, it's not the methotrexate. Um, side effects aren't in my head. Somebody's really experiencing this. I knew that I wanted to try to get off that. And then I saw hope that people were really getting off their medication. There was some something to shoot for. And it was a changing point for me. It turned everything around. So to the viewers out there that are struggling, I think you can find really some some relief through changing your foods, finding out what's triggering the inflammation in your body. There's hope, you know? Yeah, that's great. Wow, that's really cool. Uh, you talk about the example of of finding the sort of inspiration by watching other people come off their medications and thinking to yourself, I can do that. When I was on methotrexate, I had only been successful in getting it from 25 milligram down to 15 milligram and finding it still difficult to try and get consistent month to month, very low C-reactive protein okay. levels so that I could lower it further. And I had no role model at the time. There was no someone that I could watch to see that they had been able to achieve this and that therefore it was possible. But I just had belief that it had to be possible because when I stopped eating, I felt great. And so I thought there's just, it's a digestive issue and it absolutely has to be able to be fixed. And that's all I had in my mind. But for me, just to recall, you know, what happened, I was in the United States and I had my methotrexate with me and then completely innocently without any kind of intention, we left my methotrexate by accident at my mother-in-law's house when we returned to Australia. And it took a week when I got back to Australia to realize that I didn't have it. Then we contacted her and it took over two and a half weeks for it to get sent from the United States to Australia. And then then I hadn't taken it for three weeks or, or even a little more. And I looked at it and I thought, it's been three weeks since I've taken it and nothing feels different. And I thought, if I can get through another three weeks, I might be off this thing. And obviously, this is not what I recommend anyone does. But I'm telling you, at the end of like two, three months passed after that, I didn't notice a single difference, not one single difference in my body. 
as though the drug had stopped working a long time ago and I was taking this medication at 15 milligram a week, which is, you know, mid-range. And uh, I don't know how long I would have been on that drug if I had not have accidentally left it in the States and then kind of became a little rebellious on top of that. I don't right. know. But anyway, look, now we have other conventional way, people who've done conventional uh, methods of, of coming down off these medications, and that is inspiring, and that it definitely uh, creates that hope that you talk about. Let's move on to your experiences with Mayo Cleveland Clinic. What's happening at these world-class facilities with their belief on how to treat these conditions? Well, you know, um, I put in about three or four months after my diagnosis and, you know, the frustration of getting into a rheumatologist here in the States, I started to do research. I looked in Chicago, trying to look for the best rheumatologist I could. And when I looked at these hospitals, you know, um, traditionally, uh, John Hopkins comes up and the Mayo Clinic is some of the best rheumatologists hospitals in the country. So I put in for an appointment. It took about six, seven months for me to get in. And I was excited about it. You know, I don't know if I, what I expected out of it, a breakthrough, you know, miraculous thing or them to say, oh, you don't really have it, you know. But I really also wanted to know, I wanted to get as many um, bright minds in this field to, to tell me what they know about it so I can kind of make my own decisions on how to move forward. Well, the one thing that was kind of surprising, I spent a, a great amount of time at the Rochester um, Mayo Clinic. They're really thorough with you. Three hours, went over all my records, checked wow. everything. Yeah. yeah, it's really good. They they mm. real comfortable setting. They mm. answer every questions and don't feel rushed. And the one thing I really want to ask more about was nutrition because I'm kind of on this path now and starting to, to learn about. It. I have a niece who has celiac disease and she was really helpful in in helping me to hey, you know, I started gluten free, then I did paleo, I did all this stuff to try to find the right thing that worked for me. So I was asking about nutrition, and I think what surprised me is that you know. I expected it from my answers uh, from the doctors that I have here, but I didn't expect it from the Mayo Clinic for them to say, well, we really don't have anything on it. You know, we, we just can't encourage you there because there's not enough evidence and we can't send you down that path. So basically they handed me a brochure on uh, meeting with a, a dietitian. Oh, right. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so I was kind of surprised mm. about that, mm. but I can understand it. As I started to realize you know, these doctors, they get maybe four hours of nutritional um, yeah. study during their thing, and they're really there for medic medicine. Yeah. And so I get it, you know. Mm. Uh, but it's it's interesting how now I, I can kind of almost see just in the three years since I've had the diagnosis, even my doctor has started to really change her thinking in that. Before she was like, no, I can't, you know. And and I get it because a lot of people, when you, you start them on a nutrition path, nutritious path uh, to try to get themselves better, most people can't stick to it, you know, and I found it's difficult even for me, you know, I'm single with no kids, no family. So it seems to be easy for me to, to be able to, to make those decisions when it comes to dinner time, what I'm going to eat. I know a lot of people struggle with that. So I understand that most people don't stay with it. So therefore it's very hard for them to get, you know, true, you know, information and something that really works. Yeah. So with the, then the Cleveland clinic, you know, I went to Cleveland clinic of functional medicine and that's completely different. They're really all about looking at the foods, doing an elimination diet. Right. And right. yeah, that was also, you know, thanks to you again and the information that I found on healing the gut. By the time I got to the Cleveland Clinic, which was October this past year, even the nutritionist and the dietitian were saying, this is the stuff you have, you're doing really great. And I actually spoke to some of the people in the room 
that just said, hey, this is the path I'm on and this is where I've been and you're doing the right thing. You're trying to figure it out. So I think I was inspirational to some of the people who were there that had just started to have problems with their gut and not knowing what's going on with their body. Mm, so that's awesome. Yeah. But I really, the, the Cleveland Clinic was really great. And again, spending two to three hours with the doctor, meeting with a health coach, meeting with a nutritionist and really going through the, the whole process of elimination diet. So you can figure out what the triggers are. And uh, so you pretty much just booked an appointment as you would to your local doctor and you said, Hey, I'm from out of town. I'm just coming in. I'd like to have an appointment. And you kind of select the the um, specialist that you'd like to talk to. Is that kind of what you did? Absolutely. Right. And what, what they do with this initial meeting is you're, you meet with the doctor one-on-one for a couple of hours and they go from, I mean, it took me about six hours to fill out the paperwork because they go from everything from when you were born, you know, mm-hmm. how you were born, what kind of formula and yeah. My mom passed away when I was 12, so I had to right. rely, fortunately, I had sisters to rely on saying, do you remember what kind of formula was I breastfed? Mm. Was it a you know, formula? My sisters remembered that, which was amazing. Wow. So, you know, some of the things you have to go through and all the, any traumas in your life, and you go through every little thing when you had to, your first ear infection. And, you know, that's another thing, not to get sidetracked, but when you talk about the antibiotics, you know, and trying to figure out what causes disease, with my, my parents both deceased, we really didn't find any history of rheumatoid arthritis that we know of. Um, but I always had ear infections and, and strep throat and constantly uh, just antibiotics my whole life. And then when lo and behold, being an athlete that I am, when Advil was introduced, you know, we were popping those after soccer games and flight football games. And just because, it, you know, oh, this is a pain reliever. Now that I look back on all that, I think that's what really kind of caused some havoc to my gut. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think at, really there is a potential for anyone just on a basically on a Western diet to develop this condition just because it's so high fat, so inflammatory. Just that alone makes it possible to develop this condition. And then when we go and stir the fire by adding antibiotics and painkillers each month and other medications of which, you know, there are endless of all different types, anything from antidepressant drugs to to blood pressure drugs. These are all toxic for the body. And then you add the enormous amount of stress and and then a lifestyle that doesn't, in most people's cases, not yours, has very little exercise. You've got a perfect storm. And this is why autoimmune disease is just out of control right now is because all this happening. And, um, yeah, you know, but but of all of all, I think antibiotics uh, is is the the biggest culprit of the lot. You know, and I, I really thought, you know, and a, a lot of my friends even said this. My family said that when I was diagnosed, you know, but you eat really well, and I thought I ate fairly healthy. I was eating salads all the time, a lot of chicken and and lean meats, turkey. But when I look at the chickens and all the antibiotics that one had went into it, and you see these, you know, these plump breasts and stuff. That, you know, it changed my thinking. Salad dressings, when you look at really what's in those, you kind of go, wow, I really wasn't eating as well as I thought I was, you know? Mm-hmm. Those salad so, dressings are just inflammatory omega-6s. That's all they are. Yeah. Um, even yep. if they're heavily skewered towards olive oil, you know, any other form of oil uh, is going to be very heavily inflammatory. And I know once you've got an autoimmune condition, olive oil will just light you up as well. So, like, there's, yeah. Um, yeah. And all those, ch- the chicken and all that, especially in the United States, I mean, you know, it's it's an antibiotic uh, 
house. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tell us travel tips. Travel tips. Uh, you 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 get a you get around uh, for your work. How do you stay on track? Um, and do you pack food to take with you, or do you research restaurants to go to when you get there? Give us some tips on that. Well, that was probably one of the most difficult things when I first was diagnosed, and I found myself not eating, which is even worse. <laughs> you know, I'd go to places we'd have functions for work where they cater in food, and I would just stay away. You know, even just in this past year, I, I cannot believe the changes that I see in restaurants and, and grocery stores that people are becoming more aware of gluten-free, dairy-free, soy-free. And it's great. You know, it's a great time to, to be diagnosed with this disease. I guess it's better. That <laughs> sounds, sounds right to say that. But what I found is, you know, I've, I've just learned to adapt to it. So I actually will... When I travel to an area, I'll find a Whole Foods, which is popular here in the States. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have them there. Or a grocery store that has organic fruits, uh, vegetables, things like that. I will buy a bunch of those things, make sure that my my room that I'm staying in my hotel has a refrigerator or a freezer. Um, I often carry my blender with me for my smoothies mm-hmm. um, because it's just easy that way. And I bought a one of these great Yeti handheld carries that I can take on a plane. I can take in a car that holds ice for a long period of time. So I've got it down to a science. One thing I always keep on hand is, is fresh fruits, you know, some, some good protein bars in case I need something to go to. I make a lot of salads ahead of time, pack them up. One thing I found that if we, if I'm forced to go, which I am a lot of time to a business dinner, you can always find salad or some steamed vegetables that you can get. Uh, you just got to learn to carry your own dressing, you know? And if I think at first, I think the most difficult part is we're, we're built in, in our society to really go out to eat as a social thing. And I kind of felt really left out in that atmosphere because you feel bad because you don't eat. And I think what I found, though, is it's not really me that feels uncomfortable. It's the other people. That's so true. I, That's so yeah, true. I just, yeah. I'm going dinner and they would and they'd say no i'm fine i'll just have a you know a glass of tea or something and they're all like you sure you don't want anything i'm like no and and i don't want to be a burden but i was absolutely fine with but everybody else feels a little uncomfortable that's so insightful i i uh i've noticed that as well and and i i i had sort of forgotten the degree though that people do get uncomfortable when you choose not to eat or you choose not to eat what they're eating. That's, oh, wow, I, why not? What's wrong with this, exactly. you know? Yeah. yeah. Or they feel bad for you, you know? And it's like, no, I'm fine, really, you know? Yeah, yeah. But I've really learned to to make that work. And I just, a lot of comes to planning ahead and knowing, you know, I go to a lot of the same areas. So I frequent, you know, know where the restaurants. And I find myself not just not eating out anymore because mm. it's just easier to do. If I'm going to meet people for a meal, I eat beforehand. And it's just a lot easier, and I'm okay with that. And they so. they don't mind that explanation as much. If people say, "How can you not eating anything?" You just say, "I literally just ate before I come here. I couldn't eat another thing. I'm stuffed." Um, yeah. They're like, "Oh, okay." And it really does soften the blow to them a lot more, doesn't it? Yeah, and I've also taken my own food with me into the restaurant. If I'm with a group of people, I don't feel so bad, and I tip the waiter well. But I say, "Hey, I'm on a special diet, so." Yeah. You know, I'm taking it with me. So <laughs> yeah, and the U.S. restaurants are really good at mixing and matching stuff too. So one thing that Ocean Robin said on a recent podcast because he's got his recent book that he's just released, um, he said you can go and you can order like you can look at the menu, and you can go down the menu. You can see all the foods that are on the menu, 
And you can think, okay, I know that there is, for example, like some carrots in there. There are some zucchini in there. There might yeah. be some rice in that dish. There's some black beans in this other thing that I otherwise can't eat, but I know there's black beans in there. So you know that back in the kitchen, they have these ingredients and you can put together yeah. your own little combination. Yeah, the key with that is I found that a lot of the um, chain restaurants in the United States that ordering steamed broccoli is not as easy as it would seem to be mm-hmm. because they have it pre-seasoned and shipped to them that way. So mm-hmm. I actually had a discussion with the manager that I said, can't you just steam some broccoli? And they go, it's already seasoned. It's got the butter. It's got everything. Yeah. It may have gluten. In it. Wow. And I was like, oh. yeah, yeah. Food production. It's scary when you look behind the scenes, isn't it? Yeah. For me, that gluten wouldn't really affect me that much. But for somebody with celiac disease, yeah. that would be devastating. So, yeah. 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 Wow. Okay. Well, we've been through all of the bullet points that I've got here on my uh, piece of paper that I wanted to cover with you. Yeah. Any other messages that you'd like to put out while you got a chance to speak to so many people who are, who are maybe struggling or, or you know, hitting roadblocks with this condition? Yeah, I, I think the one thing, you know, the word hope, You have this program, finding out that you can actually control your symptoms, I, I should say I can control my symptoms with the foods that I eat has been life-changing for me and it has given me hope. You know, when I went through that first year, I really went to some dark places thinking, oh gosh, is this how it's going to be the rest of my life? And it was discouraging, you know, and you get to a point where you're feeling like, what's the point? Because if I can't go hiking, if I can't do this or that, there's hope there, you know, there's hope. And, and I am actually, you know, my goal is to get off this medication uh, by the summertime, which I do not think is unrealistic for myself. And I, I hopefully believe that there's people out there that can that can find the same path. It's just a matter if you choose to do it or not. You know, I've had a lot of people who've come back to me and said, wow, what are you doing? You know, that they've had it for 10, 15 years. And once I tell them, well, you know, I eliminated gluten, I eliminated dairy, I eliminated soy, they go, oh, I can't give up my cheese. And so some people just don't have it in them to do it. And they're, they're just happy with taking the medicine. And, and just thinking that that's going to bridge the effect and make it work from, you know, that's, that's a personal choice. Um, if you really are discouraged where you're at right now, my, my recommendation would say, just, just go all in and try it. You got nothing to lose, you know, um, really look for the, the research. I researched different books and read, you know, the autoimmune fix, um, conquering arthritis by Barbara Allen, some of the ones you suggested research everything you can and find that um, the common thing that I see is that diet has helped a lot of people on this journey. You know, uh, Dr. Terry Wales, some, there's something to this. And so if you can kind of look at it, start with an elimination program such as the Patterson program and, and go all in. There's hope. And I really think you can find answers and get off the medication because it's not doing your body any good. Mm-hmm. It's a blessing that you bypassed the prednisone, and that was an insight that you had. You did. Yeah. We didn't talk about much in your journey, but as far as we can sort of, uh, yeah. we can suffice just to say that it was offered and you declined it, right? Yeah, I saw some ill effects with my father in prednisone, and and I didn't like you know what I've heard about it. Hmm. So my doctor kept trying to say, "Hey, it's just going to bridge the gap to make you feel better." I hate and that bridge. I hate that bridge. We shouldn't yeah, use that so- bridge. <laughs> When yeah. the bridge becomes a highway. <laughs> exactly. That bridge becomes a highway yeah. to hell. 
Yeah. yeah. So I, I said no. And there's oftentimes I looked at, it, I had filled the prescription, but I looked at it and I wouldn't do it. And now I look back and, and I've actually heard stories of people who have said, and I think a couple on your podcast have said they wish they hadn't stayed on it so long. It damaged them so much. And, you know, I understand there's a need for steroids to a certain extent. In fact, when you take the Rituxan, it's administered with, with the steroid, like 50 milligrams, or no, 125 milligrams, oh 125. God. And I yep. was really upset with my doctor because I found out after the fact. Yeah, that's and yeah. she said they do this because there's been some fatalities with the rituxan. It's you know highly toxic. They 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 just do it for precautions. So I had asked her on my next infusion if I can cut that in half because I wasn't real happy with it. But she was telling me that she felt better with it because of the safety of it. You know, you had to administer it with it. But that's the only time I really took any steroids, mm. and I think that I felt like I was forced into that. But Knock on wood, hopefully I don't have to have that going forward. Yeah, that was a so. long time ago now too, so that stuff's well and truly out of your system. But for just as right. a just as a note for people watching this, that that the um prednisone administered through an injection is just as bad for leaky gut as what it is when you take a tablet form. There's no way out. There's no way out. Yeah. It's going to cause very, very bad long term yeah. negative effects on the digestive wall. Anyway. So well done, absolutely wonderful, and um, good luck with uh, with with your methotrexate goals. You've gotten it to a point now, five milligram. I've heard doctors say that it's such an insignificant dose. In fact, I forget the medical term. Uh, it's not ineffective dose they've used it for, for referring to five milligram methotrexate, but almost um, a non-clinical dose or something. I mean, you're right down there at the moment. Yeah, I guess when you think about it, they started me on four to see if I could handle it. So two might seem insignificant. I haven't seen any change in my SCD or my CRP levels. Yeah. Everything's been really yeah. good. Yeah. So I just feel like if I could just do it slowly, you know, yeah. three or four months at a time. Yeah. Um, I Again, I'm holding myself to stay on this until I keep my exercise regimen. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's yeah. kind of just a personal goal myself. but. Yep. Yeah, so I really feel I'll be um, medication-free in a few months. So be amazing. It's, be amazing. Well, it's a journey that I couldn't have done had I not found you. So thank you, Clint. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for putting all the hard work in. You know, it's the situation where you have the information, but unless you go all in, as you as you put it, you're not going to get the results. So congratulations, and uh, really appreciate you sharing your story and your insights. We've learned a lot from you. Thank you, Jackie. Thanks, Clint. listening to the Pattison Program. For more information, visit pattisonprogram.com.